welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Psalm 92, verses 11 through 13, New International Version. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20 Verses 9 and 10, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. If you've been with us on our last several episodes of Anchored by Truth, you'll know that we're in the midst of a series about objections that are raised against the existence of God. Our specific aim is to see whether those objections are reasonable when you subject them to a logical analysis. Again, with us today is Doug Apple, who is the manager of Wave 94 radio station in Tallahassee, Florida. Doug has been active in Christian broadcasting for more than 25 years and is a faithful and knowledgeable student of the Bible. He has a passion to help Christians mature in their faith, just as Paul commends believers to do in many of his epistles. Before we get into our discussion, Doug, would you like to take a couple of minutes and tell us a little about why you wanted to help Anchored by Truth pursue this series? Well, this series is entitled The Lord of Logic, and sometimes it's really frustrating when people think of Christianity and faith as being not logical. And so anytime we can kind of dive into that subject and show that God is the Lord of Logic, I'm all for it. Thank you, Doug. And just for the listener's benefit, Doug has been with us for the past few episodes, and we expect him to be with us on the next one as well. So far in this series, which we are entitling The Lord of Logic, we have addressed a number of important topics. We started off thinking about thinking. In our first couple of episodes, we pointed out that a lot of statements that sound very profound are actually self-defeating. After we did some thinking about thinking, We then moved on to addressing specific objections that are offered about God's existence. In our last episode, we looked at the objection that there were so many different ideas or versions of God that exist around the world that it's impossible for us to know which, if any of them, is true. Before that, we examined the objection that because we can't perceive God with any of our physical senses, we have no evidence for God's existence. And we also examined the objection that even if God existed, we cannot know anything meaningful about him because God is too different for mankind to be known. 
In other words, he would be unknowable. And what we've seen in all cases is that these objections are not reasonable in a formal sense. They don't pass muster when they're subjected to a logical evaluation. It makes philosophy the product of particles, ethics the product of electrons, and science the product of slime. That kind of a transformation would be no less miraculous than God's creative activity is. Right. All causes are known by their effects. Just about every concept of God that has ever circulated, even many of the pagan concepts, acknowledges that God is a primary or ultimate cause of everything. We can't see the wind, but we can see the trees move. We can't see whether someone loves us or hates us, but we can know what they feel by how they treat us. So we can know that God, as the ultimate cause, exists because we can perceive his effect, the visible, tangible universe around us. Anyone who would like to hear the detailed discussions of the first three objections to God's existence that we've discussed can go to their favorite podcasting app and listen to those episodes whenever they want. Now, to move on, today we want to look at a fourth objection that is often offered by why the God of the Bible cannot exist. And that is that the existence of evil demonstrates that God, even if he doesn't exist, cannot be all-powerful. Or, if he is all-powerful, he cannot be all-good. This criticism is built around the idea that an all-good, all-powerful God would never permit evil to exist within his creation. So, if evil does exist, and we all know that it does, then God either can't prevent it, won't prevent it, or isn't there in the first place to prevent it. Yes, so this objection is similar to the first three in that it makes many of the same assumptions about the nature of a reality that would make no sense if God did not exist. But, unlike the first three objections, this objection adds an additional dimension. It doesn't just challenge God's existence, but also God's character. In saying that because we can't perceive God with our five senses, we're basically just debating God's existence, but not any of his attributes. The objection that evil's existence means that God can't exist, or be all-powerful and all-good, makes a statement about God's character and attributes, even if his existence were somehow demonstrated. Said differently, this objection presumes to pronounce judgment on God. Yikes! That's always a dangerous place to be. It's one thing for a human being to have doubts about God's existence, but it's something entirely different when human beings decide that they possess the ability to pronounce judgment about a being that is incomparably superior to them. I agree. But let's not start there. Let's return to the analytical process that we've used in studying the first three objections to God by studying the assumptions that are inescapably tied to the objection itself. So, the first assumption being made is that there's a real difference between good and evil, that it's possible to make a distinction. After all, if, say, the pantheistic view of creation was true, the God is all and all is God, then there'd be no difference between good and evil. Right. Consistent pantheists acknowledge that any perceived differences between good and evil, kindness and cruelty, or right and wrong, are just illusions. If God is everything, then everything that happens within the universe is just another manifestation of an all-pervading unity. 
So, an action that occurs in one part of the universe cannot possess a different character than any other action. All parts of the whole are just one more expression of the whole. The unavoidable conclusion from everything being part of a sort of one unified giant consciousness is that no meaningful distinctions can be made between actions, events, or consequences. This obliterates the possibility of labeling some events as being genuinely good, while others are genuinely evil. Exactly. But the Christian view that the universe is a creation of an almighty, all-good God immediately establishes an entirely different foundation for the relationship between God and his creation and between the relationships of the beings within that creation. An all-good creator God possesses the right of sovereignty over that which he created. He made everything, including both the inanimate and animate parts of the universe, including human beings. So, God can establish the standards by which he wants his creation to operate, including the permissible actions of human beings. He made us so he can tell us what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Right. The Bible uses the analogy that the potter has the right to shape the clay into whatever vessel the potter chooses. The potter has power over the clay. The potter can designate that one lump of clay be used for one purpose and a different lump for a different purpose. But essentially in Western cultures, we don't care very much for that analogy. We like thinking of ourselves as being completely free and therefore allowed to choose what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And God did give human beings freedom of choice. The Bible's clear about that. God gave us freedom of choice, but the Bible is also clear that our choices have consequences. Our choices, though freely made, are not free of consequences. Some of our choices will produce beneficial outcomes for ourselves and others, but the opposite choices will yield the opposite consequences. God built freedom of choice into human beings, but he also built the law of sowing and reaping into the economy of creation. We reap what we sow. It's just that we reap later than we sow, more than we sow, and often in completely unexpected ways. But the basic point is that the God who created the universe and people has the power to prescribe what those human beings are allowed to do within his creation. The standard-setting, law-giving God establishes the difference between right and wrong and good and evil. And it's only because there is such a God that there's a real perceivable difference between good and evil. And that is a really good point. If God didn't exist there would be no objective basis by which good and evil could be distinguished. And it's important to note that when we speak about good and evil or right and wrong, we're not just talking about mere preference or inconvenience. Many things might be inconvenient for me or someone else, but that does not mean that they're wrong or evil. My neighbor may paint his house a color I don't like. I may find their color choice unpleasant or even inconvenient. But absent some deed restriction, my neighbor choosing that color is not evil. But if my neighbor steals my lawnmower, that theft isn't just inconvenient, it's wrong. And even small children know that. From very early ages, all people know that there is a real difference between right and wrong. But there can only be that difference because God created the universe and established laws by which his creatures are to function. 
God not only created moral and ethical laws that govern people, but he also built human beings so that we can perceive those laws. Yes, that is a first very important point. If God didn't exist, there's no valid basis for saying that there's a real distinction between good and evil. And the second point is that anyone who proclaims that God should not permit evil to exist has to not only recognize that there's a difference between good and evil, they must also believe they're capable of making the distinction. How could they say that it's unfair for God to permit evil to exist if they don't have the ability to personally distinguish between fairness and unfairness? It's one thing for a standard to exist. It's another thing to know the standard is there. You can treat a pet badly. You certainly shouldn't, but you could. And the pet may show you that it's miserable or sad. But the pet's not going to take you to court. It would take another human being to do that because the other human being can recognize that you are violating an established standard. Lower animals can react to good or evil behavior, but they can't label those behaviors as being good or evil. Well, the objector who says that a good God would not permit evil to exist must affirm they believe they possess the ability to distinguish evil from good. Otherwise, they could not frame the objection in the first place. So, the objector is inadvertently admitting that there is a God who cannot only establish the standard, but also create beings who can recognize the standards. The only alternative to a creator God is for life to have arisen from the collision of inanimate particles. Chaotic collisions do not create ethical or moral standards. Nor could random interactions of atoms and molecules build a being with the cognizant ability to comprehend ethics and morality. How can the undirected interaction of hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen make it wrong to steal from your neighbor or mistreat your pet? It can't. So, this reinforces the fact that the objection that the existence of evil disproves the existence of a good God is actually self-defeating. The objector is appealing to a standard that would only be present, or possible, if God exists. God must have ordered his creation in such a way that there is a real difference between good and evil, or the distinction between the two would be meaningless. Furthermore, there is a third observation we can make about this objection. Without a good God, who establishes laws that permit the separation of good and evil, there's no reason to complain that evil exists. Without the ability to perceive the distinction, the objector would have never been able to raise the objection. But, in addition to these points, the fact that the objector is judging God tells us that the objector is fine with making judgments about others. The objector clearly understands that God is a being separate and distinct from them. The objector believes they possess the capacity for evaluating the relative merits of arguments or situations, and the objector feels sufficiently qualified to announce the results of their evaluations to others. So, a third important point is that the objector is willing to subject another being, in this case God, to their judgment, then the objector would have to agree that it's okay for God to judge them. Bingo! So, in pronouncing judgment on God, the objector has agreed that it would be fair for God to pronounce judgment on them. As the old-timers used to say, turnabout is fair play. 
But this leads the objector into even deeper waters. Judgment implies not only the comparison of one action or circumstance to a standard, but also the existence of obligations. We alluded to this in our last episode. The concept of an obligation goes even beyond the existence of a standard or an awareness of the standard. The concept of an obligation is that we must not only acknowledge the standard, but also comply with it. And obligation, as it turns out, is a very tricky business. There are some obligations that apply to some people, but not to others. But there are some obligations that apply to everyone. For instance, there are obligations that exist within families. And while every family has some obligations, they may vary considerably from family to family. One family may expect everyone to come to dinner in the evening. In other families, that may not be a point of emphasis. But in every family, kids are expected to be obedient to their parents, and parents have an obligation to provide for the health, safety, and well-being of their kids. There are some obligations that apply to people in one community, but not in others. These obligations might apply to the use of property, or the size of signs, or how traffic flowed. But if a different town or community, an entirely different set of obligations might apply. Or there might be no obligations at all for some purposes, like whether commercial businesses can locate in certain places. But there are some kinds of obligations that are universal. Things like prohibitions on murder, theft, or lying. The point is that while the concept of obligations applies to all people everywhere, the specifics of obligations can vary considerably. And there is no way to explain these kinds of nuances if human beings were just the product of a long series of random mutations in so-called macromolecules. Right. And the nuances and obligations are not just limited to varying applicability. There are other nuances that defy the notion that obligations somehow have a biological origin, not a theological one. One of the things you noted is that obligations most often include the concept of reciprocity. In other words, there are mutual obligations. Citizens pay their taxes, but the government's supposed to provide police and fire protection and maintain public structures like roads. Kids should obey their parents, but the parents provide for their kids. In other words, obligations usually go both ways. Another thing you pointed out is that obligations may have a common origin or purpose, but the specifics vary considerably. Taxes are high in some places and low in others. Some schools require students to wear uniforms to class, and others don't. But what's always present is the idea that not only are there standards, and the people have the capability to know those standards, but also that judgments will be made about compliance, and that there will be consequences for non-compliance. It's easy to see how an omnipotent and righteous creator God could design this interconnected system of obligation and judgment. But if God didn't exist and create everything, including human beings, it's very, very hard to see how the idea of obligation, judgment, and consequence could have arisen. And that's a really important point. It's important to note that when we are talking about obligations and judgment, we are, again, often talking about moral or ethical standards, not simply physical consequences. If you jump off a tall building and violate the law of gravity, there will certainly be consequences. But that's not necessarily true if you steal your neighbor's property. It's entirely possible that you might not get caught, but that will never make the theft acceptable. Stealing is wrong regardless of whether there are immediate physical consequences in a person's life. 
And as you say, in a universe where all life came from the random collision of inanimate particles, it's hard to see how all these intertwined concepts could have been generated by just variations in the collisions. Right. Advocates of evolution sometimes point to a sort of shared herd instinct as the reason human beings have rules that govern their relationships. In essence, the thought is that the behaviors we label judgment and obligation are really just biological reflections of the fact that cooperation among humans made them more formidable in the quest for survival. In other words, the fact that human beings cooperate really is just a way we adapted to be more fit for survival. But of course, there are lots of animals besides human beings that cooperate to survive physically. Fish swarm. Birds flock together. Ants build elaborate tunnel systems that would be impossible for a single ant. Buffaloes will form a defense circle against attacks by predators. There are lots of other creatures in nature that cooperate to survive. But those behaviors are not what is meant when human beings acknowledge that obligations exist and that a violation of those obligations has moral and ethical consequences. Human beings everywhere are well aware that violating certain standards will result in judgment and that judgment is over and above any specific physical consequences. Exactly. This awareness of what might be called ethical imperatives is unique to humans. Now, for Christians, this awareness is easy to explain. God created us in His image. Part of us possessing that image, marred though it was by the fall, is an awareness of God's righteous standards and our obligation to be obedient to the one who created us. But if you toss God aside, the ability to explain an awareness of moral imperatives is much harder to come up with. This is particularly true when you consider that the normal evolutionary hypothesis only has the random and chaotic action of inanimate particles to explain for the behavior of every living creature everywhere. Evolution does not permit any goal-directed behavior at all. So it's nearly impossible to see how a random mutation billions of years ago, some evolutionary trail produced a genetic trait that would be passed through insects, fish, birds, mammals, and ultimately to humans that would manifest itself as the notion that stealing property would result in eternal condemnation. So the notion that the existence of evil disproves the existence of God, or at least the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God, winds up hitting a great many impassable roadblocks. First, if God didn't exist, there would be no meaningful distinction between good and evil. An undirected, chaotic universe can't make some random events truly good or evil. Second, if God had not implanted a moral and ethical consciousness within man as part of making man in his image, men and women would have no ability to distinguish between good and evil. The ability to distinguish between good and evil isn't just tied to a biological necessity. In fact, sometimes doing the right things means we ignore our own safety, like when a firefighter runs into a burning building to save an elderly person. The firefighter is ignoring their safety to do something we consider a greater good. Exactly, and when the objector makes the objection that an all-good, all-powerful God would not permit evil to exist, the objectors made a moral judgment. They've implied that God had an obligation to not permit evil to exist, even if that evil is limited in time and scope. So the objector has acknowledged not just the reality of judgment, but also that judgment is appropriate when evil is present. This is a particularly startling idea. 
The objector starts by saying that the existence of evil disproves the existence of a God who can judge men all the while pronouncing their own judgment on that God. What the objector is really saying is that they believe God should have designed creation to operate differently. So, as we started out saying, the objector is elevating their opinion of things over that of God's. And that harkens back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan tempted Eve by telling her that if she ate of the forbidden fruit, she would become like God. Satan tempted Eve to replace her judgment for God's. God had told Adam and Eve they would die if they ate the fruit, but Satan lied and said they wouldn't. Adam and Eve substituted their judgment for God's, and our creation has experienced the consequences of that act ever since. Yes. So as with the first three objections, we find that this objection doesn't withstand rigorous logical scrutiny. The basis for the objection wouldn't even exist if God didn't exist, but the objection is directed toward the existence of God. This objection is self-defeating. Furthermore, the objection again points to the exquisite distinctions between man and all other forms of God's creatures. Man possesses attributes that could only be present if man was created in the image of God and had been communicated those attributes by God. So let's finish by pointing out that human beings everywhere have a built-in consciousness of God. We're told that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22, but not everyone is willing to admit that awareness exists, and they consciously attempt to suppress this knowledge, which they are permitted to do, but they are not permitted to reject it without consequences. The decisions we make about God have eternal consequences. The consequences to accept or reject Jesus as your Savior go on for eternity. And it is so important for people to understand that we only have the opportunity to make those decisions as we go through this life. Well, all this sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Since this series has required no small amount of thinking, perhaps it will help us sympathize with our kids who are in school or college. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our friends who are so dear to us. And let's remember always to pray regularly for our friends and family because the Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of His faithful children. A Prayer for Friends Heavenly Lord and Holy Father, we bless you and exalt you as we bow down before you. We are grateful that we can come into your presence and find a willing and loving Master. You are the one who framed the mountains and carved out the oceans. How much more, then, can you assist your children? Lord, we thank you for the blessings of having friends. We believe that it is you who brings people into our lives, who are a source of joy and fulfillment to us. We pray that you would help us to provide the same blessings to others. We thank you that you have helped us to meet people who help us to go beyond ourselves, friends whose hearts are loving and generous toward us, and who have steadfast spirits that keep them with us, even during the difficult times. We pray that you would bless our friends with health, strength, and prosperity. We ask that you would look into the deepest recesses of their hearts as only you can and find the secret hopes and dreams there. As it conforms to your will, fulfill their desires 
and bring them more completely into your presence. Seek out those who do not yet embrace your name and your Son and bring them into communion with you. Let them know that only friendships grounded in you will last for eternity and that joy unspeakable awaits those who put on Christ and then fellowship in His kingdom. Help us to be sensitive to the dings and dents of life that afflict others and help us to speak kind and encouraging words, especially when troubles are weighing them down. Help us to take action where such action will relieve pain or provide comfort. But help us also to know the boundaries that we should not cross. As Christ did, let us build relationships among the people we treasure and help us always to seek the good of others, even when we must set some of our own desires aside. It is your good pleasure to provide good gifts to us all, and it is impossible that we should ever bless others without being blessed by you. Bring harmony and peace to our relationships. Help us for our part to not injure or grieve others. Help us to be peacemakers using the example that your Son gave to us. Forgive us and help us to forgive others that all will know that we are the possession of your Son. In Christ's name we pray and offer praise. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.